Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 28. Nothing is trivial. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and today I'm going to keep going along with my special series of episodes called 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with a movie that was one of the most anticipated releases of that year, and which also had one of the most notable soundtracks, which is The Crow. But I'm not going to simply cover the film and talk about the soundtrack. I'm going to take a look at the film's source material, which was a comic book series written and drawn by James O. Barr in the late 1980s and early 1990s and published by Caliber Press, an independent comics company established in the late 1980s that helped launch careers of people like David Mack, Brian Michael Bendis, and Ed Brubaker. Before I begin, however, I have an email. This one comes from Professor Allen, who hosts the Short Box Showcase as well as the Quarter Bin Podcast, both of which are excellent and can be found over on the Relatively Geeky Network of Podcasts. He writes, Tom, I just wanted to drop you a line as I am getting caught up with Pop Culture Affidavit. I am a few years older than you, but Say Anything is one of my all-time favorite movies, and Eddie and the Cruisers is my wife's and my favorite guilty pleasure movie. Michael Parry Eddy from Eddie and the Cruisers is also one of the stars of Streets of Fire, my personal all-time favorite bad movie. Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, Amy Madigan, and Willem Dafoe also have major roles, but the key to the movie is that it both starts and ends with over-the-top Jim Steinman songs, although over-the-top and Jim Steinman is a bit redundant. And much to Michael Bailey's chagrin... Meatloaf sings neither of these two superbly melodramatic tunes. (laughs) I'm enjoying the show. Keep up the good work. Uh, Thanks, Professor. I have yet to see Streets of Fire. I uh, had there's an episode of the Forgotten Film Cast from way back in that show's first few episodes where they covered Streets of Fire, and I plan on renting it and watching it at some point. I have it in my Netflix queue somewhere, but. Go check out the Relatively Geeky Podcast. I'm covering the Bronze Age, the Short Box Showcase, the Quarterman Podcast. They are all great. Before I get into the main part of the episode, I want to send out a couple of thanks, words of thanks. First, to Trentus Magnus, with whom I recently recorded for an episode of his show, uh, and will probably be recording in the future with... I want to return the favor and say that if you're not listening to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, you need to go out and do that now. No, now. I don't care if you stop listening to the show and download a few of his shows and then go listen and come back. I can wait. Go now. It's just that awesome. Second, huge thanks to my friend Laura, who listened to the Say Anything episode, then listened to several other episodes and told me she's, quote, in love with the podcast. She gave me some great praise on her own blog, and that's really, really cool. So thanks, Laura. 
and thanks also goes out to Michael Bailey, who told me that my Breakfast Club episode had made me want him to watch it again, which uh, I think that's pretty that's pretty cool. The praise is all awesome. I really appreciate all of it. Um, if you like the show or you hate the show or, or want something you want to nitpick or, or just want to chat, drop me a line uh, either by email, on Facebook, or uh, or leave a comment over on the blog. Uh, speaking of the blog, you can go there to check out some more entries in the 1994, the most important year of the 90s series, including Interstate Love Song by Stone Temple Pilots, uh, the Metallica box set, Live Shit, Binge, and Purge, and uh, Memories of My Very Own Junior Prom. So, uh, yeah, go ahead and go check those out. I- I'm going to take a break, though, and when I come back, I will take a look at James O'Barr's The Crow. I'm going to play a trailer. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. James O'Barr, The Crow, first saw publication in the Caliber Comics publication, Baker Street, and then was published as a four-issue series by the company, with a fifth issue that it was at one point unpublished but eventually put out in reprints and trade paperback publications. The story was inspired by the death of O'Barr's girlfriend by a drunk driver, as he created it as a way to deal with his grief. Furthermore, he was also slightly inspired by a story he had read about a couple who was murdered over a $20 engagement ring. I have the collected edition that was published by Kitchen Sink Press around the time the movie came out in 1984. In fact, it has now a major major motion picture uh, stamped on the cover. And if I recall correctly, I purchased it kind of on a whim when I saw it on the shelf at the comic book store one week. I'd seen the movie already, being the type of the person who loves to read the source material for films he likes, snatched it up. There have been other editions printed since then, uh, but this is what I'll be using for my summary, just in case you happen to actually have a collected edition of the comic. There is an a, in there is an introduction to the collected edition by John Bergen, who is a friend of Obar's, and he talks about how much of Obar's pain and grief is found within the pages of the comic. There is then a dedication to Brandon Lee, who had died during the filming of the movie, which I'll go into when I cover the film later in the episode. Our basic story is this. A year ago, Eric and his fiancée, Shelley, were murdered by a gang of thugs. Not only that, it was a rather violent murder. Shelley was raped before she was killed. Eric has been resurrected, and he is on a mission to hunt down each of the gang members. 
In between his killing the murderers, Eric is undergoing a serious amount of mental and emotional torture as he remembers his life with Shelley and is constantly reminded of the pain and death by a crow who speaks to him and seems to alternately feel for him and taunt him. The scenes where Eric hunts down the gang are chilling and often gory. Well, as gory as things can get in black and white, anyway, he is going all through all of the gang members so that he can eventually get to T-Bird, the head of the gang. After a prologue called Inertia, where he finds one of T-Bird's thugs named Mr. Jones and gives him a warning that he's coming for him, well, all of them, in fact, we have the first of a few poems by Arthur Rambeau, the one called Ordinary Nocturne, which reads... One breath tears operatic rents in these partitions, destroys the pivots of eroded roofs, dispels the limits of the hearth, makes casements disappear. Along the vine I came, using a gargoyle as a footrest, and into this carriage which shows its age in convex window panes, in rounded panels, and torturous upholstery. Hearse of my lonely sleep, shepherd's cart of my stupidity, the vehicle spins on the grass of an overgrown highway. In a blemish high on the right window revolve pair lunar fictions, breasts, and leaves. A very dark green and a very dark blue blot out the image. We unhitch and unharness beside a patch of gravel. Here we will whistle for storms, for Sodoms and Solomons, for wild beasts and armies. Postillion and dream horses will ride on through more dense and suffocating grooves to sink me to my eyelids in the silken spring. And drive ourselves off, whipped through splashing water and spilled drinks, to roll in the barking of bulldogs. One breath dispels the limits of the hearth. There is a brief interlude where Eric imagines himself riding a train and seeing a horse run into and get strangled up by barbed wire, and turning to see death as the conductor of the train. It's surreal. It's painted as well. So there's, um, and there's one of those, inter- many of those interludes that are painted in the story, which uh, create a really nice effect. Book one is Pain. Over the course of this part, Eric takes out Tin Tin and Top Dollar, shooting them both, but not before reminding them of their crime, which they both then remember. This also serves as a hint as to what to really happen to Eric before he became the crow, because at this point we really haven't seen any of it. All we know is that what he tells the criminals and what they remember, you know, before he blows them away. In between confrontations with Tim Tin and Top Dollar, we see Eric as the crow sitting in his old house and continues mourning Shelley's death. We get the sense that as much as he is back for vengeance, he's also angry at himself. The crow that accompanies Eric continually pleads with him not to look at the bad memories and the pain, and yet he does so anyway. After Top Dollar's death, Eric once again sits alone in the house and remembers the night he proposed to Shelley, a memory that is both drawn and painted and interrupted by the same skeletal manifestation of death who was on the train in the earlier sequence. And then we then head into book two, Fear. At the beginning of Fear, the Crow finds another gang member, Tom Tom, and takes him and his friends out with a samurai sword, cutting down one of them, beheading another, and slicing Tom Tom's feet off at the ankles until he bleeds to death. We learn that Tom Tom was the one who more or less bashed Shelly's face in with his boot to keep her from screaming that night. But it's T-Bird who is the one that needs to pay the most, it seems, as up until this point, all of the guys Eric has killed have talked about T-Bird in their conversations with him. Or is it confessions to him? Eric then heads to Gideon's pawn shop to retrieve the ring that T-Bird and the gang had taken off of Shelley's finger. 
He shoots Gideon three times, and when a cop shows up, manages to convince the cop that it's none of his business, and that what the officer should be doing is leaving the pawn shop now because it's going to blow up. Just as it does, the cop calls his captain, who is nicknamed Captain Hook, to tell him about the crow. The captain seems to know what this is about, and he pulls the file about Eric and Shelley's homicide. We then have a pinup with the lyrics to The Hanging Garden by The Cure. There is an interlude called Elegy, Irony and Despair, where Obar writes, Irony. The tides of sin draw tighter and brighter, the hours become heavier and weighted, and the shadows smile dark and wild. This is when hope and desire collapse. The arc of the dream descends into despair, when innocent lovers dance like angels on fire. This is when the night comes down, a hammer on an anvil, and is the only absolution accepted as a legacy of brutality. A single note rings on and on and on. Despair. Here dwells a snake, 1,000 miles long, coiled 1,000 miles deep, eyes like candy. It is eyes like candy, hard and blue, but soft as kittens' feet out of sight or in the element of light, it could be a devil. It could be an angel with spiders inside a vision from hell. Its spine is a vertical scream, slow as concrete, blurred as a dream. It spins round and round on axis of atrocity, fueled by inertia, depth, radius, and velocity. Its soul, a twisted wreckage of despair and pain, and the spiders inside are just praying for rain, killing time, killing time, and praying for rain 1,000 miles deep. We see Eric remembering his last Christmas with Shelley, a memory that death doesn't seem to interrupt. He then heads to the streets again to retrieve Funboy, one of the other gang members. Before he confronts the thug, he runs into a little girl sitting on a porch stoop named Sherry. Sherry's bruised up and notes that her mom went to see Funboy to get some medicine, which means that she's up there to get some smack. Eric confronts her. Com- Eric comforts her and gives her Shelley's engagement ring. He then walks in on Sherry's mother and Funboy in bed together. Not surprising, Funboy threatens him, but Eric remains calm and addresses Sherry's mother, saying what is one of the most famous lines in both the comic and the film, Mother is the name for God on the lips of, and hearts of all children. Do you understand? Do you understand? Sherry's mother replete, replies, I, I, and then leaves. We get the feeling that it somehow has changed her, however, we don't know how. Eric then confronts Funboy. He lets Funboy live, but he takes some of his morphine, telling Funboy that he wants to have a little party with him and a few of his friends. We then cut to memories of Eric and Shelley making love while Eric as the crow grimaces in pain over them, and the crow companion tells him to stop torturing himself so much. Then comes book three, Irony. Eric meets Funboy and several of Funboy's friends and takes all of them out except Funboy with serious ease. He continues to keep Funboy alive, knowing that he's the only one who's going to get him to T-Bird. Funboy tells Eric a little more about his own role in the murders, he be, his being the most disgusting. He raped Shelley after she was already dead. 
Eric says he wants to see T-Bird in an hour, and Funboy says he'll retrieve the gang leader, but wants the crow to promise him something, that he'll die quickly. Eric promises to kill Funboy quickly. He can't promise the same about T-Bird. Back at the house, Eric agonizes some more about the loss of Shelly, this time cutting his arms and wrists up with a razor blade. We then get book four, Despair, which opens with a flashback to the night Eric and Shelly were killed. They had been on the beach celebrating their engagement, and on the way back to the house, Eric's car broke down. As they were on the side of the road fixing it, T-Bird and his gang drove by, then stopped and headed back to them. T-Bird and the gang got out of the car, saying they want to help. Eric, not entirely stupid, says, well, it'll be okay. When the other gang members start harassing Shelly, who's in the car, Eric screams for them to leave her alone, and he's promptly shot in the back of the head by T-Bird. He doesn't die just yet, though. T-Bird has to shoot him again, execution style, in front of Shelly. And as he does, a crow appears to Eric and says, it's okay. The gang members then proceed to rape Shelly, and the crow screams at Eric, telling him not to look. We see Funboy insist that he get a chance with Shelly, even though she is clearly dead. The gang drives away without him. His pants are unzipped as he screams, hey, wait. Eric is picked up and taken to the hospital, because despite being shot twice in the head, his body is still alive. Captain Hook comes to see him and says a few things and is shocked when he hears Eric say, the crow said, don't look. But that's all he gets, as Eric is taken into surgery and dies soon thereafter. Back in the present, Eric as the crow throws open the windows of the house and says, Shelly, I'm coming home. We then have a small interlude called Crescendo, Death, where Obar writes, It's not death if you refuse it, it is if you accept it. And we see what I guess you could call almost a montage of Eric's letting go of Shelley's memories, literally dancing with death and then blowing up the house behind him as he heads out to confront T-Bird. This leads into book five, Death. He first visits Sherry and says goodbye and then gives the police a note about the girls, basically saying to take care of her. Across town, Funboys tells T-Bird about the crow, and T-Bird really doesn't believe him, saying that Funboy's just another sick junkie. Funboy goes into the back of the room to shoot up. The crow comes to see him again. Funboy's mission has been fulfilled. He's done his job, and the quick death he gets is injecting all the morphine he has into his system at once. The crow watches this, injects some morphine into his own body, and carves a crown of thorns on his torso. Funboy starts to fade, telling the crow that when he gets back to T-Bird, he needs to kill the bastard slow. The crow kills several of T-Bird's men and blows the head off Big Shelby, who is sitting next to T-Bird in T-Bird's car. The gang gets out of the car and confronts Eric, and T-Bird tells them to just shoot him. They do, and they and when they do, he assumes this classic Christ-like pose. Several bullets go completely through his body, but nothing happens, and he proceeds to brutally beat to death all of the members of T-Bird's gang. T-Bird, now scared out of his mind, takes off in his car. The crow gets into another car, chases him down, and rams T-Bird, who is badly hurt in the accident, and winds up sitting beside the car's wreckage. They then have this confrontation. So T-Bird crawls out of the car and says, Oh, Jesus. And he says, Well, come on, do it. Pussy, you ain't shit. And the crow walks up to him and says, Hey, T-Bird. How many angels can dance in the head of the pin? Fucking quiz, man, I don't know. Crow says, It depends on the tune. We see a hammer, and the next panel is black. We then see shots of a graveyard, Eric and Shelley in better times, and we get the sense that Eric has finally found peace with the poem Being Beauteous by Arthur Rambeau, found on one of the final pages. 
Against a fall of snow, a being beautiful and tall whistlings of death and circles of faint music, make this adored body, swelling and trembling like a specter, rise. Black and scarlet gashes burst in the gleaming flesh. The true colors of life grow dark, shimmer and separate in the scaffolding around the vision. Shiverings mutter and rise, and the furious taste of these effects is charged with deadly whistlings and raucous music that the world, far between us, hurls up at our mother of beauty. She retreats us, she rises up. O ash-white face, O tussle hair, O crystal arms, on this cannon I mean to destroy myself in a swirling of trees and soft air. The trade paperback then has an afterword by A.A. Anatasio, who talks about the mythological symbolism of the crow and how Obar uses that in his story. We have several pinups in the lyrics to Decades by Joy Division, several pinups in a cover gallery, as well as more Joy Division lyrics, this time Komakino. I've probably given you a much longer synopsis than you expected of the comic, especially since it was the movie and not the comic that came out in 1994. But like other movies with source material that I've covered on this podcast, I wanted to make sure that I did it justice. Besides, well... Reading The Crow 20 years later after I first read it, uh, it's still pretty surreal. It's a window into a world or a scene that I don't really know or was never really that part of. Um, And it's also a window into the mind of someone who's truly in anguish and agony over something horribly tragic. Obar isn't subtle at all. But then again, when you're calling from bands like Joy Division and The Cure, you're not going to be very subtle, to be honest with you. I'd say 85% of the time, this works. There are points where he does lay it on a little too thickly, though. But for the most part, the story is easy to follow, and as the main character struggles with his grief, you really do feel for him, especially since we don't know exactly how the entire night of his murder went down until right before the Brooks climax. Instead, we get to know Eric and Shelley and their deaths, which are gruesome and brutal, and they have, then they have the impact that they should. The art, as I always thought, is actually the weaker of the two elements. Uh, When I first read this, I really didn't care too much for the art. But then this was my first true foray into an independent comic book that wasn't a movie tie-in for Aliens or Star Wars. 20 years later, I appreciate quite a bit of it, and while I do think it's not as strong as the writing in Obar's comic, I like the way that he plays with different styles at different points and how he's not afraid to be graphic. There's a motif of brutality through this entire book, from the murders of Eric and Shelley to the takedowns of the various gang members. Although I will say that the last two panels where it's just a hammer and the crow's hand and a black panel are some of the most brutal because Obar leaves T-Bird's death up to all of our imaginations. Contrast that with the pinups and the paintings and the moments that are meant to be both tender and heart-wrenching, and you get a book that is at times an emotional roller coaster, one that I appreciate much more than I that I as an adult than I did as a teenager. Had I been the type to listen to the bands like The Cure and Joy Division when I was in high school, and I went through high school with plenty of those people, to be honest, I suppose I would have appreciated this when I was 16. But honestly, man, I was still reading Batman. I was still reading Superman. I'll say, though, if I have one criticism of Abar's artwork, it's that the look of the characters is quite dated. The style and the design of the characters from their hair to their clothes is very late 80s, early 90s. Half of the gang members look like they could belong to generic street punk gangs from a Marvel comic of the time. Some of them look like they've been recently kicked out of Guns N' Roses. Eric himself looks a little too much like an 80s punk new wave performer than the tortured hero we're supposed to be reading about. 
Then again, so did Morpheus and Death over in the Sandman, which was also being published at the time. If you can find this on the cheap and trade paperback, I'd recommend giving it a try. It's definitely different than much of what I'm used to reading, but it does hold up very well, and it's worth a look. Now, does the movie hold up just as easily? Come back after this and find out. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. Devil's Night is upon us again. A little party, start a bunch of fires.
So The Crow opened on May 13, 1994. It wound up grossing $50.7 million at the box office, which makes it the 24th highest grossing film of 1994. That was considered a successful showing, considering the only other comic book movie in 1994 to do better than this one is the Jim Carrey film The Mask. Incidentally, both of those films were based on independent comics. The Mask was based on a Dark Horse comic, and then The Crow obviously had been put out by Caliber. Both films were also produced by the, quote, independent arms of major studios. The Mask was by New Line. Uh, the Crow was put out by Miramax. Of course, much of the initial success, or at least the initial curiosity into the film, could be attributed to the tragedy that surrounded this filming, which is the death of Brandon Lee. This occurred as the result of an accident on the set. There's plenty about it out there. There are interviews with him. There are interviews about it. I'm just going to use what's on the film's trivia section of the Internet Movie Database. Brandon Lee died during a mishap on the set. A scene required a gun to be locked, cocked, and then pointed at the camera. Because of the close range of the shot, the dummy cartridges loaded had real brass caps, bullet but no powder. After the cut, the props master, not the arms master, he had left the set for the day, dry-fired the gun to get the cock off, knocking the projectile bullet into the barrel of the gun. The next scene to be filmed involving that gun was the rape of Shelley. The gun was loaded with blanks, which usually contained double or triple the powder of a normal cartridge to make a loud noise. Lee entered the set carrying a bag of groceries containing an explosive blood pack. The script called for fun boy Michael Massey to shoot Eric Draven, Lee, as he entered the room triggering the blood pack. The bullet that was stuck in the barrel was blasted at Lee through the bag he was carrying, killing him. The footage of his death was subsequently developed and used as evidence in the investigation into his death. As part of the lawsuit settlement, the footage was later destroyed. Lee is the son of martial arts legend Bruce Lee, who died in mysterious circumstances before completing the game of death in 1970, which was released in 1978. See also the Dragon of the Bruce Lee story. This is definitely something that overshadowed the remainder of the movie's production, as well as its release. There were several scenes that had to be filmed without Lee in order to finish the movie, and some of those included scenes where his face needed to be shown, so, what his, so his face was actually digitally superimposed onto the doubles. Considering this was filmed in 1993... That's actually pretty impressive. I will say, though, at upon, that upon watching it, I could definitely tell at some points that what I was watching was shot after Brandon Lee's death. And I hadn't watched the movie since 1995. So and I think it's only like my third or fourth time seeing the movie ever. The film version of The Crow does stick to the comic book in places, but definitely goes in its own direction. Brandon Lee plays Eric Draven. It should be noted that Draven was the name given to his character for the movie, he didn't have a last name in the comic. And instead of waiting until the end for the revelation of Eric and Shelley's murders, we begin with that. Furthermore, as opposed to a wrong place, wrong time scenario, the murders of the main characters had more motivation behind them. Apparently, Shelley had either refused to move or complained to the local housing authority or something. And since Detroit's, well, Detroit, T-Bird and a bunch of his guys broke into the apartment and proceeded to beat her up and rape her. Eric enters, he'd gone out for groceries, and the result was, well, he was shot and then thrown out of the window of the of the house to the street below. We then will flash forward to a year later, when Sarah, the little girl that the crow befriends from the comic book, uh, in the comic book, of course, her name is Sherry, but um, maybe they changed it to Sarah so that it didn't sound too much like Shelly. 
I don't know. But anyway, Sarah is played by Rochelle Davis, who I honestly don't think has done very much else. She doesn't have a very long IMDb profile, but she's pretty good in this movie. She voices over. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it, and the soul can't rest. Then sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back the wrong things right. Sarah has a much bigger role in the film, or at least her storyline is a lot more prominent um, as a subplot, as we'll see. But before that, we see a crow fly through the city, land in the graveyard of a gothic church as Sarah leaves some flowers in Eric and Shelley's graves. She then visits a hot dog stand where she meets up with Officer Albrecht, who's played by Ernie Hudson. I believe he was supposed to be the, quote, Captain Hook figure from the comic we get the sense that Sarah was friends with Eric and Shelley before their deaths, and since his befriended Albrecht, of course, the scene doesn't last very long because crime is so rampant, T-Bird and his gang are about to get the chaos on, and, well, they start screaming, fire it up, fire it up, whenever they, you know, well, blow something up. Eric, meanwhile, literally rises from the grave. And the crow eventually leads him back to his and Shelley's house. He repeatedly flashes back to his death and Shelley's rape, emoting over all of it, eventually putting on the makeup that will give him the persona of the crow. All of this, by the way, it's seriously like one early 90s alt-rock video. Like, really, really long alt-90s rock video. And I'm not saying that to be pithy, to be honest with you, um, because it actually works. Obar's comic is so entrenched in the whole idea of alternative or goth or whatever you want to call it from the time that it makes total sense the film reflects the music that it's inspiration. They definitely get the mood right, even though they're not at all subtle about it. And, well, that does get in the way at some times. But right now we get the first revenge killing, and that's of Tintin, who's especially good, whose specialty seems to be knives. The crow kills Tintin with his own knives, and then he goes after Gideon in his pawn shop. And whereas the comic... In the comic, he tortures the place with him inside of it. Uh, here, he lets Gideon live, and we then get a little bit of the, of the big bad, whom I thought at first was T-Bird, but realized was later was Top Dollar. He's played by Michael Wincott, who's one of those actors who played villains in a few of the movies of the early 90s, and he's got this sadistic, mystical Asian girlfriend, uh, like crazy witchy woman played by Bai Ling, and, and, and I'll, more, more on those characters later. The other thing we see is Sarah's mom, Darla, who's, well, she's just like in the comics, she's screwing Funboy because she's a morphine junkie, and that's how she gets her fix. Uh, Sarah fends for herself pretty well. She's the stereotypical scrappy sort of 90s skateboarding kid. She's even got, like, the look of a 90s kid teenager. Very Rayanne Graff, uh, to be honest with you. Anyway, Albert and the Crow have a quick confrontation with the Crow blows up Gideon's pawn shop, but it's short. It's enough to make Albrecht want to look into the old murder, which he's not supposed to be doing, especially since he's already been busted down to the role of beat cop, and he's got some captain or whomever who's just kind of a total dick to him the whole time, and, you know, Ernie Hudson is always good at playing this guy's just kind of laugh that shit off. 
The Crow goes after Funboy, who was the most brutal towards Shelley in both the comic and the movie, uh, and the Crow interrupts his night with Darla and shoots him in the leg and puts him in a bathtub. He then proceeds to empty all of Funboy's morphine into his body and removes all of the drugs from Darla's, providing her with a moment of clarity, saying the line, Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. It certainly wakes her up, and later on we see her actually making breakfast for Sarah. Before going after T-Bird, the crow stops at Albrecht's apartment and gets the full story about what happened. Albrecht doesn't just tell him, though. The crow, like, mind melds with him and gets the full story out of his head. He then says, Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. He then goes on the rooftop and plays guitar. No, seriously, he does. He plays guitar on the rooftop of the building. It's like all metal and and, and stuff. Like I said, this is like one big 90s alt-rock video. Anyway, he next does get T-Bird, who is not a big black guy as he was in the comic, but he's actually played by David Patrick Kelly, who is known for playing Sully in Commando. You know, remember Sully, I told you I killed you last. Yeah, Matrix, you did. I lied. But whose place in movie history has been cemented because he's the guy who says this. There's a pretty good car chase scene that ends with the crow taking T-Bird and his T-Bird, hence the name T-Bird, to the docks where he duct tapes him to a seat, puts the car in drive, blows the car up as it goes off the dock, just as T-Bird recognizes, well, who the crow actually is. He then leaves the crow symbol in flames on the street. Meanwhile, Top Dollar's right-hand man, Grange, played by the Candyman himself, Tony Todd, finds Eric's open grave. We then get a reunion of Eric and Sarah before we have a scene where Top Dollar gets all of his men together to tell them to set the biggest Devil's Night fire ever. And that never happens, though, because the crow interrupts the meeting and takes out all of the guys. Witchy Witchy Bai Ling says something about the crow being the source of the crow's power, and she goes after the bird, and what eventually happens to get us to the climax is that Eric visits Sarah one last time at his grave. He gives her Shelly's ring. Then Top Dollar kidnaps Sarah, and the crow and Top Dollar have their confrontation on the top of a church. Albrecht kills Grange and almost dies himself, which a woman is taken out by the bird, and the crow then kills Top Dollar by mind-melding with him, where he shares all of Shelley's pain and throws it back into his body. And then Top Dollar falls off the roof. Eric then leaves Sarah with Albrecht and crawls to Shelley's grave, and we get Sarah's voiceover. If the people we love are stolen from us, the way to have them live on is to never stop loving them. Buildings burn, people die, but real love is forever. I kind of glossed over the confrontation at the end there, but honestly, the major problem with the film is the main villain, Top Dollar. Michael Wincott's kind of an evil Christian Slater, in all honesty, throughout this movie. And when he fights the crow, they like face off and he's carrying Inigo Montoya's sword. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Plus, there's actually no reason for Top Dollar to be big bad in the movie. In the comic, T-Bird's the head of the gang, Top Dollar's just another thug. In the 
in the movie's murder scene, Top Dollar is not even there. T-Bird's still in charge of everything. And for some reason, though, we're to make to believe that the Crow's purpose in coming back is not to avenge his death or Shelley's, but to take down Top Dollar because he and Bai Ling are evil or something? And seriously, the whole mystical thing, it just messes it all up. It's like we can't have a straightforward revenge story that's moody and 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 surreal which is what Obar kind of was going for. No, we've got to take that idea and merge it with Tim Burton's Batman films. It honestly takes a lot of away from the film and and is the major reason that the film has not aged very well in the last 20 years. Because had they simply expanded the characters of Sarah and Albrecht the way they do? In fact, Albrecht's kind of a combination between the beat cop that he runs into a Gideon's shop and Captain Hook. Um, that would have worked. Make T-Bird, the alpha male gang leader who was hard to catch, it would have been a solid film. The idea that the Crow needed a supervillain is... It's so fucking Hollywood. But for what it's worth... Despite the film's story flaws, and it's definitely dated in places, it still has a lot of good points to it. Brandon Lee, mostly. Brandon Lee is excellent. He manages to not make a character that's, if you really consider it a pretty over-the-top character, he manages to not make him too cheesy. In fact, this would have been a truly breakout role for him if he hadn't died. And like I mentioned earlier, the film captures the mood of the comic very well, even if it does fall short in the story department. The film's soundtrack, by the way, is notable. Uh, It's a compilation of alt-rock by bands that were considered quote-unquote alternative in the 80s and early 90s, including Violent Femmes, The Cure, Rollins Band, Helmet, Pantera, For Love Not Least, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Stone Temple Pilots, and Nine Inch Nails, among others. The album hit number one on the Billboard charts. It is one of those albums that quite a number of people in uh, my generation own. Sadly, I do not. Um, (laughs) I think I wanted the album, but I never got around to buying it, uh, especially since I already had a copy of the, the biggest song off of the album, which was Big Empty by Stone Temple Pilots. In fact, I remember going to see the movie. Like they used that the, the song was a hit by then. They used the song in all the trailers for the movie. And so I was expecting it to like be in the movie and it's in the movie, but it's like playing on somebody's car radio for like 2 seconds. And I remember kind of being annoyed in the theater. Um I actually went to see this by myself, believe it or not. Uh my friend had said he was going to go with me and then he didn't, and I just kind of was like, all right, well, I'm going to go by myself, and, and I w- walked up to Sable Theater and paid my money and went and saw it, and I remember being pretty psyched that the that the trailer for Highlander 3 played before this, and thought the movie was really, really good, and then got it on video, and the only other time I remember watching it was hanging out with my friend Valerie when we were freshmen in college and watching this together. I think we watched Say Anything the same night, actually. But yeah, like I said, it, it wasn't a... It's an important movie for the year. I think it's kind of an important superhero or comic book movie, especially considering how many independent comic book films were made in the 1990s. But but you know, but then you also have, of course, the soundtrack. And like I said, um, and, and I, I got off on a tangent here because I was talking about Big Empty. And I think the reason I didn't get the soundtrack is because I wound up buying Purple. 
and uh, that had Big Empty on it, so I didn't feel the need to buy the rest of the soundtrack, and I, I think I've taped some songs off of it and stuff like that. But back to the album itself, whereas an album like Singles is a good representation of the Seattle sound, and, and, and Reality Bites is a good representation of the pop side of things, and the Crow's soundtrack represents the harder of the 90s alternative, uh, what I guess at the time would have been industrial... I don't know if the word goth was being used at that time. I, I can't remember. Um, I think it was just alternative. I heard that word a lot in the early 90s. And there was some metal in here too. Um, but unlike the other two movie soundtracks that I just mentioned, The Crow's soundtrack didn't completely overshadow its companion film because the film opened at number one. It's not like Reality Bites, uh, which did not do very well, or Singles, which kind of did marginally well or didn't do very well, but the soundtrack's still very well. Empire Records, for instance, the same way. Granted, The Crow slipped from number one pretty quickly. It was out of the top ten within a month, but this is mid-May. So the releases after this, Maverick, The Flintstones, and Speed, all within the next month, because you're getting into the summer of 94. And, you know, it, it... it's been a long time, with the exception of, I think, The Dark Knight Rises that and, and maybe a couple of other movies here and there. Usually summer blockbusters do not hold on to the, to the number one spot for longer than maybe a couple of weeks. Sorry, The Dark Knight, not The Dark Knight Rises. Anyway, it, it did well. And, you know, it's worth checking out because... It does have that time capsule aspect to it, and it is that that sort of. It is a very '90s movie. It is a very independent comic on a nine on a screen on the screen. It is it is alt rock. It is a lot of these things kind of encapsulated in in, in two hours, as is as is the soundtrack. So um, you know, go check it out. As for me. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Uh, I'm going to try to get myself on a bi-weekly schedule again this summer. That worked out pretty well last summer. We'll see how that goes. But uh, come back in a few weeks. I'll be talking sports. Yeah, sports. I know. I know. And I'm sure you guys can handle it. Trust me. Until then, thanks for listening. And take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.